All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That's 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And while that's true of all scripture, all scripture is inspired. I think that's kind of like saying all diamonds are valuable. And they are, right? All diamonds are valuable. But then there's like the hope diamond. And it's what? It's really, really valuable. So all scripture is inspired. But if I had to pick out one book that I personally thought was the most inspired. It's all inspired, okay? But the most inspired, anybody want to guess which one I think it might be? I think it's the revelation. I really do. Because the, the revelation, folks, it's, it's, it's more than a letter. It, it's like a dictation that Jesus himself said, John, sit down. Sit down for a minute. And, and I, I want to show you what's going to be happening in the future. Write this down. John, what you see and what you're about to hear, write this down. Not take great notes and see how well you can summarize. Do the best you can. God gave this to him. Isn't that amazing? God gave this to him exactly as God wanted it delivered. And, and yet... To me, some of the mystery in this book is, while I believe that's true, and you see it time and again, come here, I've got to show you something. Write this down. What you see, what you hear, write this down. Even in the midst of that, there are times in this revelation that, that we see John is at a loss for words. He is at a loss for words. Because some of what he sees, it's, it's beyond human words. And, and John is trying to describe something that goes beyond what two human eyes have ever, ever seen before. Okay, Using words that he knows at times are inadequate to describe the, the newness and the splendor of, of this thing that he is privileged to see. And he's not about to go making up words. You know, you read along and he says, this was just phantasmagorical. And everybody's going, what? So he's, he's trying to use words that he knows, words that his audience will know, to describe something that is, ah, it's just so far beyond. It's so far out there. And, and it's like he's going, this is, I know this isn't exactly it, but it's as close as I can come in terms of the words I know. But this is, this is amazing, people. This is so overwhelming. So the revelation on the one hand is it's like a dictation. It's like a dictated letter, but it's not stiff. It's not like a a telegraph, okay? How many of you have ever seen a telegraph? A lot of you here who don't even know what a telegraph is. But those of you who have seen them, you know, it's not like I was called to heaven. Stop. I was in the spirit. Stop. I saw God's throne. Stop. It's not like that. But it's also not some loose and sloppy thing that he just kind of, Wrote down as fast as he could and it in some places didn't make any sense. It's not like predictive text. Okay? Some of you aren't old enough to understand telegraphs, but you're all old. Well, some of you might be too old to understand what's a predictive text. But my wife has predictive text on her phone and it's hilarious. You can receive a text from my wife and she's going along and she tries to say thanks. And if she's not careful, thanks come out, comes out thyroid. And so she gets texts back from people going, what? 
So it's not like that either, okay? It's somewhere between something that's not stilted and got a lot of stops in it, and it's also not just some hodgepodge, hopefully close enough. The last point I want to make before we dive into the text together is um, because the revelation is God-breathed, God-inspired, okay, it's important for us to understand and realize that the reason I call it the hope diamond of inspiration is because it's the most strategic letter that has ever, ever been written in the history of letter writing, okay? We've already looked at chapters 1 through 3, the seven letters to the seven churches, and how that's a preparation for the church as to how to live in victory in this fallen, hostile, evil world. And the miracle of the letter was it was written to those people 2,000 years ago and told them how to do that, but it's also written to us today to tell us how to do that very same thing. There are timeless truths in this book in terms of knowing your enemy and knowing how to overcome him. If you miss the first six weeks, you can go online and listen to the podcast or you can order the CDs. I would encourage you to do that to get caught up, okay? So we've got the first three chapters, those seven letters to seven churches. And then from chapter 6 to chapter 18, it's the bad stuff that is coming to planet Earth. And I mean really bad stuff. Okay, it's it's horrible. It's awful. It's enough to scare the hell out of people. And if I just offended you, I sure didn't mean to. But I literally mean that. I think if a person reads that letter and he's not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I think by God's design, it was intended to scare the hell out of them. To show them what awaits people who don't have faith in Jesus, who don't come to a personal relationship in him. Folks, it's grim, it's graphic, it's awful. We're going to get there soon enough, okay? But before we get to the bad stuff in chapter 6, the work of evil and all of that culminating in this world, chapters 4 and 5 shift the scene. And it shifts to heaven. And it shifts not just to heaven, but... To the, to the very throne of God, to the throne room of God and to the Lamb and to the, the book, the scrolls that, that he took a hold of and opened up. Now, I want you to remember this. God is being inordinately calculated and deliberate and purposeful in how this revelation unfolds. I absolutely believe with all my heart that the scene we're going to look at today in chapters 4 and 5 shows us and reminds us First of all, that the entire universe, and that's everything out there, is theocentric. It's all God-centered, okay? No matter how bad it gets, how awful it gets, how terrible it looks, it's a reminder to us that everything is centered on God. And it shows us the inseparable connection between everything going on in earth and God's throne room in heaven, okay? Everything described in these two chapters is in relationship and proximity to the throne of God. And I think that says to us loudly and clearly, without using these words, God is sovereign. Doesn't matter how bad it gets down here, God's in total control of everything, okay? Everything in history, everything today as it's unfolding is happening just like he knew it would. He's not surprised by any of this mess, okay? Nothing escapes his notice. Folks, nothing even escapes his plan. These things must take place, right? And it also says to us that his son 
as you'll see here in a minute, is vitally involved in the execution of God's sovereign plan and will. Okay? So, don't, 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 don't jump ahead to chapter 6 until you clearly understand chapters 4 and 5. So, we got a lot to cover today. You ready? Okay, let's uh, have uh, Dennis Bruns come up, if he would, please. Dennis is going to read for us chapter 4. And uh, we're going to try and cover chapter 4 and 5 today. And I know that's biting off a lot. I think we can do it. Okay? Yes, we can. Good. All right, so as we have been doing each week to honor the Word of God, would you stand, please, as Dennis reads? And then we'll have you sit down and we'll go back through this chapter. Revelations chapter 4. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like jasper stone, and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne four living creatures full of eyes in front And behind, the first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Dennis, you all can have a seat. That vision that Dennis just read for us is very, very consistent with other visions that we see, other pictures that we see in the scripture of the throne of God or the throne room of God. If you want to on your own, you can jot these two references down. Ezekiel chapter 1 and Isaiah chapter 6 are other places where we get a picture into. So what is the throne of God? What does the throne room of God, throne room of God look like? If you want to go look at that on your own, I, I welcome you to do that. But here's another thing I want you to understand is, as we dive into the midst into the midst of the, the majesty and, and the splendor and how awesome this, this God is who is revealed here and how powerful he is and just what this throne in this throne room is, is like, the throne of Revelation 4 is still this type of throne at its very core. Amidst the splendor and majesty and awesome power that's revealed here, it's still this kind of throne. Hebrews 4.16. 
Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of, say that word with me, to the throne of grace, so that we may receive, say the word, mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Folks, we see a revelation here of a throne, of a God who is so majestic, so powerful, so awesome, so wonderful. And yet at the very foundation of his throne, we still find grace and mercy. And that's huge. That is so important. We're about to see judgment and chaos unfold in this world like the world has never seen before. But still at the very heart of God, at the, at the foundation, at the core of who he is and what his throne stands for and represents, we still find and will always find grace and mercy. That's a big deal. I don't know if, if that grabs our heart like it should, but that's a big deal. Amidst all the chaos and all the tumult, grace and mercy will never, ever be in short supply. I can't speak for you. I am so thankful that that's the truth for me, for my family, for this church. Folks, it's going to get nasty out there. Grace and mercy will never be in short supply towards you, towards me as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. That makes me happy. (laughs) There's a lot of days that that's what keeps me going. And it should be the same for you. Okay, let's let's unwrap this this chapter. Um, And as we do that, let's remember there's a lot of imagery here, okay? An awful lot of imagery. So we don't know what should be taken totally literally or what's figurative and symbolic. Let's kind of hold this loosely. Um, Also that, remember, the revelation is not necessarily chronological or sequential. So it might be talking about things that are happening simultaneously. It's talking simultaneously about things that are happening at different periods and points in time. And the final thing is, I wish we could just stand up and have this read chapters 4 and 5 all together. But it's too much to, to take in at once. But we shouldn't see this as two separate visions. This is one vision with two parts. Chapter 4, the throne, the throne room. Chapter 5, the lamb with the scrolls. But it all fits together, okay? Can we remember that? Can we kind of keep that in our mind as we continue to go on? Sure we can, Kent. Good. Here we go. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. I don't think that's a literal door. I think rather it's like a a portal, uh, an opening into a spiritual dimension of reality. Come up here, John. I want to show you a higher truth. I want to show you a higher reality. I want to show you the driving force that's really behind good and bad, all that you see going on in the natural, all that you see happening on the planet Earth. That first voice, this voice that I heard rather is like the first voice that I heard. That goes back to chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, where the Lord Jesus was speaking to him. This is Jesus, again, speaking to him and talking about what must take place. That is what the book started with in chapter 1, verse 1. That's said again here. It's said numerous times throughout the book. And I think by the end of this, because I said this when I taught this down in Haiti last month. You're going to get tired of hearing me say this. But I sure hope not. Because as this thing unfolds and it looks bleak and it looks nasty and it looks awful and it looks chaotic and it looks really ugly and terrible. We are going to need reminded time and time and time again. This has got to take place. This, this is how it has to happen. 
Okay? So every time you read in this book and you go, man, this looks bad. These things must take place. Looks like we're losing. These things must take place. What's going on? These things must take place. Why did this have to happen? These things must take place. As much as I hate to say this, it's so similar to the drive. When the Broncos were on the Browns' two-yard line with virtually no time left in the game, and one of the offensive linemen said, we got him right where we want him. I can't believe I even said that this morning. But there's great similarity in this thing. When it just looks so bad and so terrible, no, it's over. God says to his team, we got him right where we want him. These things must take place. I got to show you what takes place after these things. That's a picture of the future, probably in several segments. Remember I talked one of the first weeks about that thing called prophetic telescoping. When John looks through a telescope and what he's seeing are different mountain peaks at various pieces of time, points in time, and he can't tell the difference. I think when we hear this, this is what's got to take place after these things. It's a, a sense of in the future. When can't, when? I don't know. And nobody really knows. It's just what's out there and what's going to happen. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and the one sitting on the throne and he who was sitting was like a Jasper stone and a Sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Remember that phrase in the spirit. It'll happen four times in the book. And every time it happens, it's a, a key that the vision is now shifting to a, a new location and a new place. And there's a new dimension of something that's going to be revealed here in a minute. I think personally, John had an out-of-body experience here at this moment. And I think it was essential, necessary, that that's what he had. Remember, Moses wanted to see God. God, show me your glory. And God said, oh, Moses, if I showed you my glory right now in all its fullest, you'd be evaporated. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of this rock. And I'm, I'm going to pass in front of you and you'll see part of who I am. Until we get our new glorified bodies in the resurrection, to be in the very presence of God's throne room would just kill us. Okay? So John had to have this kind of experience to go there. Now, this does not say that God is made of precious stones. It says his appearance was like that. It's, it's dazzling. It's brilliant. I am at a loss for words, John is saying, as to how to describe this one who sits on the throne. But there's a rainbow around the throne which again, I think is another one of those not so subtle reminders of God's covenant promise. God promised in uh, Genesis chapter 9, wasn't it 9? When that rainbow was in the sky that I am not going to destroy mankind or the world again. Judgment? Oh yeah, there's judgment coming, but boy, that's not God speaking. That's not my first heart. My first heart is salvation and restoration. Judgment if necessary because people won't repent and won't bow their knee, but salvation and restoration... That's my heart. Remember, it's a throne of grace and mercy. And the rainbow, I think, represents that. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments. And golden crowns were on their heads. It doesn't say who these 24 elders are sitting on these 24 thrones. Um, whenever they're mentioned, though, you'll see they're connected to these four living creatures. And there's always a role in worshiping the lamb that they, that they play. Okay? 
Commentators, scholars think that the number 12, well, they know the number 12, is, is a number of divine governance and divine order. I mean, you've got 12 months in a year. There are 12 gates in the New Jerusalem, 12 angels at each gate. Uh, the walls of the gate have 12 foundation stones. 12 is a big number to God of his divine order and his governance over the affairs of everything. Um, some think that this is a combination. These 24 elders represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, and that it's a, a picture of, of how the Old Testament and the New Testament um, converge and, and culminate. Remember, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, did he? He came to do what? To fulfill it, to kind of put it all together. And this is a kind of a, a statement, a picture of what we're going to see here in a minute of God's historic plan all coming together and merging in, in his perfect will being accomplished. Uh, I don't know if that's the case or not. Nobody really knows. But whoever these 24 elders are, it talks about them being clothed in white, purity, and having crowns on their heads. It's important to know that the, the word for crowns here is the word stephanos. It's a victory crown. It's something you receive as a reward. It's not a diadem. It's not a crown that a ruler wears. Who's wearing that one? Jesus is wearing that one, okay? So these, whoever they are, clearly represent people who are not of the Godhead, but rather they are those around that throne who play a special role, but they are wearing a crown of reward, kind of like a prize. Out of the throne comes flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Lightning and thunder shows up in this book and in a lot of books in the Bible as a display of God's awesome presence and his awesome power. Okay? These seven lamps of burning fire are the seven spirits of God. Not that God has seven different spirits, but I think it's more of a... Seven, seven is the number of perfection, completion. I think rather this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Because I don't think you can look at the throne of God and not somewhere in this picture find Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because yes, they are, they are different in their personhoods. They're, they're unique individuals. But whenever the will and plan of God is unfolding, all three of them are always involved, are they not? And so I think that that's what this is. We look at this picture and we're going to see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The great three in one. Yeah, they're separate in their personhood, but they are inseparable in relationship and in having their part to play in this great drama of the history of the world that we're going to watch unfold here. And now comes what I think is the coolest part of this whole vision. Are you ready? This is just, oh. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Some scholars think that this, um, this sea of glass, you know, it's something like glass and it's like crystal. But again, words are not cutting it for John to describe this thing. Some think it's, it's a picture of God's purity. I surely believe that that's a part of it. But I think that this is also an amazing and personally, I find it an amazing, encouraging picture of what happens to sin when it's dealt with properly. Let's watch this little video clip here. And it's got a point to it, I promise.
Can I sure hope that has a point to it. That's like sin. Sin makes a big splash, doesn't it? Sin in your life and my life has a great impact upon us. And it also makes waves and ripples that go out and impact other people, doesn't it? Have you ever found that, that your sin just affects you and nobody else? I haven't. And I think that, uh, amazingly, is a great picture of sin and the devastation and the consequences and the effect it has on our lives and the lives of others. But when sin is properly dealt with, it looks way different, okay? And I couldn't find a picture of this because it can't happen in the natural. But I think this sea of glass, this crystal sea, is where your sin goes and my sin goes when it's given to God and we let him deal with it. Here's why I say that. Micah chapter 7 verse 9 says this, speaking of God, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Folks, I believe that when we confess our sin, and it talks about Him being faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us, that sin that we confess hits that crystal sea and it doesn't even leave a ripple. Confessed sin is completely dealt with by God. The blood of Jesus, Jesus dying on that cross, the work of the Holy Spirit to cleanse our conscience, however you want to look at that, whatever language, whatever words you want to use, was not what Jesus did on the cross sufficient to cover sin? It absolutely was. And I think this, this crystal sea around the throne of God is such that sin gets deposited in there. It doesn't even make a ripple and it sinks to the bottom. And the bottom is a long way down. As far as the east is the west, it goes that far away from us. And it's forgiven and it's forgotten. And God doesn't keep looking down in that and goes, oh, there's Kent's sin again. Wow, I'd forgotten about that. And I'm really glad he doesn't, okay? Because mine's probably piling up right just under the surface. But so is yours, so who are we kidding? <laughs> what Jesus did on the cross, the shedding of his blood and the work of the Holy Spirit, is totally sufficient to both forgive and eradicate sin. Amen? That's our God. All right, back to the text. Talks here about these four living creatures. One is like a lion and... One is like a calf, and one's like a man, and one's like a flying eagle. talks about them being full of eyes in front and behind. They have exceeding knowledge. I don't know if that's a picture of them being omniscient, all-knowing. We know God's all-knowing. Maybe they are in some respect, too. I don't know. Each of them has six wings. That's a picture of their unlimited mobility and their ability to do God's bidding. These who sit around that throne can do anything God asks them to do. This picture, this vision, again, is similar to what Isaiah saw in chapter 6 when he saw those seraphim, the creatures that Ezekiel saw in chapter 1. And I personally think that the creatures in Ezekiel are the same ones being described here because there's so many similarities. And a big part of their job, especially we read in Ezekiel, is they bear up, they hold up the throne of God. And Ezekiel talks about this thing having wheels inside of wheels, and they're almost like gyroscopes. And the picture is this thing 
thing can move any direction, all directions, at any time, all at once. And again, it defies our little three-dimensional understanding of, of space and time. The picture is, especially in Ezekiel chapter 1, God's throne is movable. Meaning, God never has to leave his throne. Because the throne is the place of absolute power and authority. And the picture is, God will never abdicate his throne. And yet you read in the Old Testament especially, it's like the throne of God moves down on the scene. And and we find in Exodus that the Lord descended on Mount Sinai. And later on in Exodus 24, Moses and the elders, when they're on Mount Sinai, they they see the feet of God. And it says it looks kind of like sapphire. The point is, God just doesn't sit far away, you know, somewhere out there. No. That throne moves. God is everywhere present. He is not limited by our understanding of space and time. He can be anywhere, everywhere. And he's always in the position of power and authority. Always. He will never abdicate that throne. That lion, that ox or calf, some versions say, that face of a man, that eagle. is Every one of those animals is a leader in its type of animal. And I think each of those points back to who God is. A lion is majesty and royalty and power. An ox and a calf, it's strength and they're faithful workers. The man represents spirituality and intellect. And the eagle is swift to action. And an eagle is always a picture of sovereignty. How's that do for describing who God is? See, everything around that throne reflects who he is. It's all aimed at him, right? It's all theocentric. They cry out, holy, holy, holy. A threefold superlative. Good, better, best. Kind of like verily, verily, I say unto you. Remember I've taught you? When you see verily, verily, or truly, truly, it means what? This is important. Pay attention. Well, this is threefold, not twofold. So it's really important, and we really need to pay attention. What a picture, folks, we see here. A blending of holiness and grace, justice and mercy, righteousness and kindness. God is the full package. And in this scripture is the first of many hymns of worship throughout the book. And, you know, it starts with these four. By the time we get to the end of the book, it's multitudes upon multitudes who join in this chorus of praise and worship. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne, will worship him who lives forever and ever, will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and because of of your will they existed and were created. You see, the four started, the 24 elders respond and join in with that second hymn we see there. And they're casting their crowns before his feet. Yes, I got this crown, this prize, this reward. But who's kidding who? I'm not worthy of this. Any reward, any prize I have is only because of what you, God, have done in my life in the first place. I just want to give credit back to you. Any good thing I've done, any position I hold, any accomplishment in this life. Lord, here, you're the source. You're worthy. All I was doing was following instruction. And then I, I read this and I wonder, I, I personally I do, I just wonder how can they, how can they do this forever? I, I look at me, I look in the mirror and I think, 30 minutes of worship and I'm ready to, let, what else? Okay, now, now what? What's going on? Come on. Okay, come on. Okay, good, good, good. Now what? 
Now, I don't think for a minute that we're all going to sit on harps and sit on clouds in heaven with harps. And this is all we're going to do. I think heaven is filled with all kinds of other activity and learning and recreation and all kinds of stuff. But do you ever wonder how could somebody do this forever and ever and never get bored? And never, what? Let me show you something here. This is just totally my idea. But here's how I think this happens. Okay. I think these 24 elders are before the throne of God and they look up and they, they see a facet of who he is. And it just brings them to their knees. And they're just on their face before him in worship. They're overwhelmed by what they've seen. And then they look up and they see something new. They go right back down in adoration and worship and praise. And then they go back up. And I don't know if you've noticed or not, but God's kind of multifaceted. He's not like real one-dimensional. And so I think there is an, an infinity, an infinite supply of the newness of God and the facets of God that these who are around the throne will see. And they will never get bored. They will never get tired because there's always going to be a new dimension of who God is that they see. And it's going to cause them to fall on their face again in front of him. Get it? I mean, even if they had to repeat a couple times over the course of eternity, it's not going to feel very repetitious. Wow. Okay, just when you think it couldn't, any, couldn't get any better, it's going to. Jeff, why don't you come up here? Jeff McCauley is going to read for us chapter 5. So if you'd stand and continue to be prepared to be blown away by what we read. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Revelation chapter 5, the book uh, with seven seals. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break this, its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion. Stop weeping. Behold, the lion. That is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people. A nation. 
You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying in a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. I would venture to say that Jeff McCauley read that over and over again ahead of time to be prepared so he wouldn't break up and have an emotional moment. And yet you can't read that, can you, without it just gripping your heart. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. It's not literally God's right hand, but the right hand always is symbolic of God's power and authority. And this, this is a scroll, okay? Put the next slide up. It's not a book like we think of. It's a scroll, okay? That's what it looked like, all right? It's unrolled and it's, it unravels as you go. It's a continuous story of history as it unfolds. It's written on front and back. That's unusual for a scroll to have that. And I think it represents the fullness of God's knowledge of all of history. And I think also this scroll is a a picture of what we're going to see here in a minute of what Ezekiel received. But it has seven seals. Now let's go to the other one. That's just somebody's drawing, okay? But, But those are seven seals that go down that book. And the seal was on the outside edge of the scroll, and they were wax seals, okay? There was some kind of cloth around it, and then wax that was melted to hold the two pieces of, the two ends of the ribbon or or cloth together, and then a signet ring, the, the, the ring of the king, his symbol, sign of authority, was stamped into that thing to ensure, to guarantee the integrity and the authenticity of what was written in there. It's the, the ruler himself saying, this is true. And it's got my symbol. It's got my seal on it, okay? Original documents were always sealed like this for safekeeping. Copies weren't, but the originals were. And this thing that we're seeing here is God's authentic copy of what? Well, there's a couple theories on what that is. Some scholars think it's like a last will and testament, okay? Because they were also scrolls that were sealed. And in Roman times, they were sealed with seven seals. Um, some believe that the scroll contained uh, the details of our inheritance in Christ, okay? That it was, you know, written long ago and it was sealed, it was guaranteed, but it's going to be executed and finally fulfilled when Jesus comes again, all right? So the dead will be raised, um, we'll stand before the judgment seat, uh, the unbelievers will stand before the great white throne of judgment. That's a a good idea, but the problem with that view is when the seals are broken, as we're going to get here to here down the road, it doesn't say anything about our inheritance. When those seals are broken, all that's revealed is the judgment that's coming on this world. It's terrifying to read what's coming. So I don't think there's a consistency there that says this really is the last will and testament. Others believe that the scroll is the Lamb's book of life. We'll read about that. 
five, six, seven times in the book of the Revelation. And that because there's writing on the inside and outside, it's a great indicator that there's going to be a lot of people saved. A lot of people's names are in that book of life. There's no context to validate that. It could be, but there's, there's nothing else that says that's what it is. There's some who think that this scroll is, is kind of the title deed to planet Earth. And when Adam and Eve sinned, they gave the deed to the enemy, to the devil. That's why he's had power and authority in this, in this world. When they sinned, they forfeited their power and their authority and their dominion over this planet. Um, that when Jesus comes and makes it all better, he takes it back. That could be also, but I think there's a better explanation. I think what this scroll is, I think it is a picture, the unfolding of the entire plan, God's entire redemptive plan for all of mankind throughout the full and total history of the world. It's got the salvation of believers in there from Before Christ even came, Abraham's in there and other believers are in there. It's got all the blessings of God towards those who follow him. It's got everything in there about the judgment of the wicked and the overthrow of evil. It's the prophetic story of the end times that's coming and how it's going to end for all people. You know, when God finishes this thing, there will be no unfinished business. For believers and for unbelievers, nothing is going to be left undone. Every I dotted, every T crossed, okay? The reason I think that that's what it is, the story of history of mankind, both the good and the bad, is because how this little thing we just read parallels Ezekiel chapter 2. Ezekiel was to prophesy about the fate of Israel. The good and the bad, okay? It was a part of his prophetic ministry. Let me read for you what Ezekiel 2 says about the scroll that he'd received. But, when you, but you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they're rebellious. Now you, son of man, listen to what I am speaking to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I am giving you. Then I looked and behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it. When he spread it out before me, it was written on both front and back. And written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woes. This thing's written on both sides, just like the one in Revelation. There was a hand extended, just like in Revelation. And the message wasn't just redemptive. You see, and I believe that when John is, when he sees this vision, he doesn't describe the actual opening of the scrolls. As we go on in here, we'll see, okay, they're open, but then that leads to the seals and the seven seals lead to the seven trumpets and the seven trumpets lead to the seven bowls. And it's the story, it's the, the, the full story, the prophecy, the account of Revelation 8 through 22. After the seventh seal is broken... What we'll read in the Revelation is the culmination and the finishing of the entire history of the world. Chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book and look into it. The angel's probably Gabriel, because Gabriel is the one that always had the blessing of bringing good news. And this is good news, folks, okay? Who is worthy to open the book? No one can be found anywhere. That said for dramatic effect. And it worked, didn't it? Because what was John's response? Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look in it. 
You see, I think God allowed him to have that moment, that experience where it seemed as if no one was worthy to realize, for John to realize, and for us as we realize this, as we read this rather, to to more fully appreciate what Christ has done for us. I think it's similar to, remember back in the Garden of Eden when Adam was given the job of naming all the animals? And one of the reasons I think God gave him that job was, okay, okay, that's a giraffe and that's a... He came to the conclusion that everybody else has somebody. I don't have anybody. And I think it created in his heart a desire and a longing to have somebody. I think God let John have this experience and lets us into this experience to say, we need somebody. If there's nobody worthy to open this book... We're sunk, right? And so for dramatic effect, God makes it seem like there's nobody. We need to find somebody worthy. And one of the elders said, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Folks, Jesus is the only one worthy to open that scroll because he is the only one who can fully, completely, totally fulfill the plan of God. He is the one who makes sense of all of human history. And part of the problem, part of the reason why I think our world is in the chaos that it's in today is that when you take God out of the equation and try and make sense of what are we here for, you go back to, well, we just evolved from pond scum and there's really no point to all this. And you find the chaos that we find ourselves in. Right? Jesus is, is worthy to open the scroll because he's the one that fulfills the plan of God. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the root of David. Both of those things talked about in the Old Testament. And we just see this amazing, vivid picture throughout the book of Isaiah of, of this, this triumphant Messiah king who is coming to deliver God's people from everything wrong. Physical, spiritual, political, emotional, you name it. He has overcome. And then John looks and I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Do you think John was surprised at that moment? I do. He was just told about the lion. And he sees a lamb. What a mystery. And yet, again, what a perfect picture of of the two sides of how this thing unfolds, is it not? God's perfect plan fulfilled in this vision. Jesus can only be the lion. He can only be the conquering king because he first came and suffered And died as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This wasn't about just coming and reestablishing political control or power over God's enemies. There was a price to be paid. And the Lamb came and paid that price. The Lamb appears as if slain. He was slain. Okay? That's not an illusion. He was slain, but now he lives. It's a picture of the resurrection of Jesus. He had seven horns and seven eyes. Yes, this, this lamb was meek and humble. He was the suffering servant. But now he is perfect, complete in power, 
seven horns, and he's omniscient. He has seven eyes. The seven spirits of God are there. Again, not seven different spirits, but once again, I think a reference to the Holy Spirit and his work coupling with the work of the Lamb in the history of mankind. This chapter, again, perfect picture of the Trinity. God has a plan. It's on that scroll. Jesus takes the scroll because he's the one worthy to execute the plan. And the Holy Spirit is the one who brings revelation to us and to the world about this plan and how it's to be fulfilled on planet Earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Jesus, by taking that book, that plan, and being allowed by God the Father to do it, shows once again, proves once again, that he alone is worthy to fulfill this amazing plan. If some usurper came to take that plan out of the hand of God, you think God would have let go? You think there's anybody powerful enough to wrestle that plan from the hand of God? Hello? God freely gave it to his son because he knew in God's perfect plan and wisdom that this son, this, this lion lamb, was the one worthy to fulfill that plan. And when he'd taken the book, the 24 creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, every tongue, and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth as the, as the lamb is ready to start revealing God's plan from beginning to end. These four living creatures, these 24 elders, they are overcome with the magnitude and significance of what's about to happen. And a harp represents an instrument of praise and worship. There is great thankfulness for what's about to happen. And the golden bowls of incense represent prayer. Not prayers of praise, but prayers of petition. And I think this is an inordinate, amazing picture, folks, of something like this. Prayers like... Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How many of you have ever said that prayer? How many of you have said that prayer over a hundred times? Now multiply that by the billions of people who have lived on this planet. That's a prayer that's been prayed easily over a hundred billion, with a B, times. Could you imagine being at the moment, at the point in history when it's like, it's going to happen. Remember that thing we've been praying? Remember? Hundreds of billions of times. It's going to happen. Do you get the magnitude of this thing? That's just overwhelming to me to be in that moment in history where this thing we've been asking for a hundred billion times is right on the cusp, right on the verge of being fulfilled. In this new song, there's a specific focus. Jesus is worthy because of his redeeming death and his, his ransoming, his paying for mankind, buying us back, bringing us back by his blood. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from the futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, no, but you were redeemed by the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Wow. You know, 
Put the next slide back up. That's a repeat of what we just read. I'm, I'm sure there's going to be countless songs all about Christ's divinity and his deity and his being king of kings and lord of lords and all about his power and his might. Don't you think there'll just be more songs written about all that than we could ever even imagine? I do. I know that. But this new song focuses upon the perfect and complete work of salvation and redemption that Jesus has accomplished for all people everywhere. And it's going to result in our being a kingdom of priests. As a priest, you're going to have immediate access into the presence of God. Wow. As a part of that kingdom, not only will he rule over us, but folks, we're going to see, we're going to share in his reign and his rule. Dominion is going to be restored. We're going to get back to like it was in the garden before sin messed this whole thing up. He will reign. Some versions say he shall reign. It's a present tense word that also has a future culmination to it. We already reign with Christ. Ephesians 2.6 says we are seated with him in the heavenly places, right? But it's not all completely, totally, perfectly fulfilled yet. That day is coming when he comes again. I can't wait. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in the heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne, And unto the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This thing moved from four to ten thousands upon ten thousands upon ten thousands. I think it parallels what we read in Philippians 2, 9, that there's a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. It's not a statement of universal salvation. That's a statement of declaring the truth. And there will be many who bow that knee and go, oh no, how could I have been so stubborn? How could I have been so blind? How could I have missed it? But the truth is still that he is Lord. Not theirs, but he is. But then the glorious part of this is us. Folks, we will be a part of this great throng of people from every tongue and tribe and nation. From, from history to history. That declare his excellence and his worth. Because of what he has done for us. Is anybody in this room just the least bit excited? <laughs> Let's stand. I think giving God a hand at this moment is a good thing. I don't know who started it, but let's finish it. We do thank you, Lord, because this is the truth. And we bless you today for that truth. We worship you today. So uh, I'm going to pray. We are right at leaving time. But I know there are folks who are here that would be more than happy to stay a little bit and pray for you if you have need of prayer. Um, Maybe you need some of that crystal sea experience today with something going on in your life, okay? I don't know. But if you need prayer, let's have the ministry team come forward. And um, I'm going to pray and, and bless you. And after I pray, i got two quick things I need to remind you of. So let me pray and um, then we'll get out of here. Lord, um, wow. I'm so thankful for chapters 4 and 5. 
because <laughs> chapter 6 is ugly. But chapters 4 and 5 remind us, they continue to take us back to who you are, to your sovereignty, uh, to your absolute and total control of this chaotic mess we call planet Earth. Lord, you can't look online, you can't read a newspaper, you can't read a magazine, you can't watch the news and not see that this thing is getting to be a bigger mess every day. And just when we thought it was as big a mess as it could be, it gets to be a bigger mess. There's chaos all over this planet. Thanks for chapters 4 and 5. We want to anchor ourselves in that. And Lord, even as we read through the book on our own, remind us to go back to chapters 4 and 5 on a regular basis to stay rooted and grounded in the ultimate truth of who you are and what you've done for us. Jesus, we are thankful today that you are the lion and the lamb. We, we bless you today for that. We're grateful for that work in our lives. And we thank you for it. Amen. Hey, so before you walk out the door, two things. If you want to grab brunch or a quick bite to eat and come back at 1 o'clock to help decorate the sanctuary and some other parts of the church to get us ready for the holidays, that would be a great, great thing. The last thing is watch your mailboxes, okay? We are going to send something to you in the mail at the beginning of the week that will really help prepare your heart and prepare your family for what we're going to do in December. We've got some great things planned to help us focus and really celebrate this Christmas season in a way that I don't think we've ever done that before. It's going to be very special. We've got some stuff coming your way that will help you prepare for each Sunday. So it should be showing up probably Tuesday. Is that Tuesday, Wednesday, somewhere in there. But it'll give you a few days to get ready for the following Sunday. We're going to culminate this on Christmas Eve. Two services Christmas Eve, 4 o'clock and 5.30. It's a Saturday, so for most people, work shouldn't be a problem. And then, no church service Christmas Day. Sunday the 25th, we're going to just have that time for you to be able to be with your families, okay? So bless you. Have a great week. And uh, Lord willing, we'll see you next Sunday.